Yeah, I mentioned the first two orphans have been welcomed into the Mufumizi baby home. Their names are Aya and Shapiso, and God has already begun uh, the ministry of orphans through that uh, ministry. So what an encouragement that is. Uh, we're going to pray right now for the Mac family, for One Hope for Africa, and for the baby home. Would you stand with me right now as we pray, and let's lift up this ministry unto the Lord. Our Father, we give you great praise this morning, for we remember how we were adopted by you, by your sovereign grace. You reached into our lives and you gave us a home. That we were the orphans, and we were the ones who were lost in our sin. <clears throat> And because of your sovereign mercy, you have called us to be children of God in Christ. Lord, we praise you for the grace that we have received in our salvation. And Lord, it is because we have received this grace, Lord, that we watch this video, Lord, and we, we have hearts, Lord, for those orphans in need of care because it is you who, have, who has changed our hearts that we may, Lord, have compassion upon those who, who need care of their own, Lord. And so, Father, we just want to just pause at this moment and give you great praise and give you great glory for just allowing our church to send this South Africa team to allow us to be part of something that is so beautiful and so glorifying, Lord, to you. Father, what a privilege and what a joy this is, not only for the team that has gone, but for all who have been part of our church, who have been part of praying and, and sending and supporting and giving, Lord, so that this team could go and be part of what you are doing in South Africa. And so, Father, at this time, we want to lift this ministry up to you, we want to lift up Josh and Marta and their family, the church, a Living Hope Church, Lord, and also their, the ministry, a One Hope for Africa, and the Mufamuzi Baby Home. And Lord, we ask that through the sovereign work of your spirit that you would use this ministry greatly for your name's sake. We ask that, Father, you would multiply, Father, all those who have given, all the resources that have been given, and use it for a great spiritual harvest in that land that would glorify Christ and bring many to the knowledge of Christ. We ask that you would do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. Lord, we pray that this ministry would continue, Lord, not only in this generation, but even for generations to come, that, Father, that some of these orphans, Lord, who are welcomed to this home would, Father, be raised in the fear and the admonition of the Lord that they would come to faith in Christ in an early age and that they would go on to be messengers for the gospel in that land to proclaim Christ that Christ would be magnified and that your church would be built up Lord we ask that you would give us wisdom and the guidance of your Holy Spirit to to grant us as a church to know our place in this ministry oh father we 
desire to continue to serve. We desire to continue to send. And yet at the same time, Father, we desire to submit all of these things before your sovereign hand because we know that you are the one who opens doors and you are the one who closes doors. And though man plans the way, Lord, you are the one who directs our steps. And so, Lord, we don't want our passion to become presumption. We desire to submit all things unto your sovereign hand and ask that, Lord, you would lead and guide our relationship with the max. And Lord, even if it would be that your sovereign will would be to direct us elsewhere, to direct our resources elsewhere in missions, Lord, we would pray that our hearts would be filled with praise just for the small glimpse and the small part that we have been able to be a part of in sending this team this year and to see this baby home open, Lord, for, for the care of orphans. And so, Father, we ask once again that you would guide us as a church. We ask, so, Father, we come to you with no agenda of our own, just to submit our lives under your sovereign direction and pray that you would lead us as a church, that you would use us for your glory, that you would move our hearts, Father, you would stir us with a desire to see the gospel proclaimed, and that you would be glorified no matter whether we be part of ministries, great or small. Oh, Father, that you would be glorified in our hearts desire simply to worship you. Father, we give you all the praise and glory for all that we have seen. We pray that you continue to direct our time this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's already been a very blessed morning and a great encouragement to our hearts, but I would say in all humility that uh, there is more to come, and I would like you to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians this morning, Ephesians chapter 1. Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, and that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of the Lord is, perf- is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it's because of scriptures like these that I come to you this morning with great excitement and anticipation as we begin a study of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, we are going to begin a study this morning from this great and powerful epistle. This will be the focus of our thoughts and our attention for the next number of months. And we come to this book with the confidence that God has given to us this book for our blessing and for our joy. Isaiah 55 verse 10, God says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And the Lord has a purpose in giving to us the book of Ephesians. The Lord has a purpose in giving us the privilege 
of studying this book as a church. So I'd like to begin this morning by reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians has been called the crown of Paul's writings. One commentator called this book the queen of all the epistles. The great reformer John Calvin studied all the books of the Bible and preached verse by verse through every book of the Bible. And he said at the end that the book of Ephesians was his favorite epistle. It is a letter that has been read and studied throughout all the centuries and has been bringing great blessing to all of God's people as they have devoted themselves to the text of this letter. The renowned New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce called this letter the quintessence of Paul's theology. He says this is the crown and the climax of all that Paul has to write in the New Testament. And this book has always landed with great impact upon the Christian soul. Bible teacher John Stott said of Ephesians that nobody can read this book without being moved to wonder and to worship. And I believe that statement is so true of Ephesians. It is impossible to truly understand and to grasp the contents of this great epistle without being moved to wonder and to worship. This book comes with the power to revive our souls. It comes with the power to rejoice our hearts. And it comes with the power to transform our lives. John McKay was a Bible teacher who lived in the early 1900s. And when McKay was 14 years old, he read the book of Ephesians. He instantly fell in love with it as a teenager. And he said of Ephesians that once I understood the contents of this book, I saw a new world. In other words, I saw the world through the lens of the Bible. And he said, when I looked at the world after reading Ephesians, I saw a world that centered around Jesus Christ. That is the impact of the book of Ephesians upon the soul. When McKay was nearing 60 years old, 45 years after he had begun, had read the book of Ephesians for the very first time, he was asked to give a series of lectures at a prestigious university, and he chose Ephesians to be the topic of his lectures. And as he spoke of Ephesians as an older man, he called this book the greatest, the maturest, and for our time, the most relevant of all of Paul's works. He said, here is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and consummate compendium of our holy Christian faith. And he said, after reflecting 
on Ephesians for 45 years that this book is pure music. What we read in Ephesians is truth that sings. This is doctrine set to music. Never was the reality of God's revelation more obvious than in this great book, which is known by the title, The Epistle to the Ephesians. And so this book has always landed with great impact upon the Christian soul. And we can expect no less as we devote ourselves to the teaching of this great epistle. I want to remind you that this book was written to the church. In chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, To the saints who are at Ephesus, Paul is writing to the church of Jesus Christ. And so this book is immediately applicable to our lives today. It needs very little translation. It needs very little um, adjustment in our understanding to the, the times and the epochs of God's working in redemptive history. It is written directly to the church of Jesus Christ. And so this book is for us, Cornerstone Bible Church. God has given the book of Ephesians to us as a gift of his grace, as an expression of his kindness, as an expression of his love for us as his beloved children. He desires this book to be a blessing to our souls. My prayer is that as we study this great epistle, that our eyes would be open to see the glories of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. My prayer is that as we study the contents of this book, that our hearts would be strengthened as we live our Christian lives. And if you've read the book of Ephesians in the past, you know that the division of this book is very simple. The book can be divided into two basic sections. The first three chapters deal with doctrine, and the second three chapters deal with duty. Or we could put it this way, that the first three chapters of Ephesians deal with our position in Christ. All that God has given to us through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. After dealing with our position in Christ, Paul then moves on in chapters 4 to 6 to talk about our practice in Christ. He deals with how then are we to live? After having received all that we have received through the gospel of God's Son, how then are we as Christians to conduct ourselves in this world? And so the first three chapters deal with our position in Christ, and the next three chapters deal with our practice as believers. Or we could say it this way, that the first three chapters deal with the indicatives of Scripture. And by indicatives, we mean what God has done. You know, in, in the first three chapters, all Paul is doing through the course of the first half of the book is just showing us this is what God has done. He gives us no instructions, no exhortations, no applications. He's just saying, look, brothers and sisters, open your eyes and see the great things that God has done for us in our salvation. 
It is only after Paul unfolds for us the indicatives of what God has accomplished for us through his son that he moves in chapters 4 to 6 to give us the imperatives of scripture. How then are we to live in light of the great work that God has accomplished in his salvation? And so this book deals with both our position and our practice. This book both deals with our doctrine and our duty. This book in perfect balance gives us the indicatives and the imperatives. But I want you to know that though the book itself can be divided into those two basic sections, that there's a theme that runs through the entire book, and that theme is the riches of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. If I could sum up the the major theme in the book of Ephesians, it would be our riches as believers in Christ. Paul writes this book to unfold to us the riches of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus, to show us as believers how truly rich we are because of what Christ has done in his death and his resurrection. Throughout the the years, this book has been called the Believer's Bank Book, the treasure house of the believer in Christ. In this epistle, the word glory is used eight times. The word inheritance is used four times. The word riches is used five times. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays that the church would have their eyes open to see the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He prays that believers in the church would understand how rich they are because of what Christ has done. And as they understand their riches in Christ, that their hearts would be strengthened to serve and to love God. This book was written to unfold for us the riches of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. And it's written in order to explain to the believer that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that you are rich beyond your wildest imagination. If you have placed your faith in Christ for salvation, then you are rich beyond your wildest dreams. You're rich both in time and for eternity. The parable of Matthew 13 is also true. Becoming a Christian is finding a treasure. And the treasure is so great and so awesome and so beautiful that it's worth selling everything you have with joy in order to gain that treasure. And what Paul is saying in the book of Ephesians that if you are that Christian who has sold everything you have in order to gain the treasure that is in Christ Jesus, now let's look at what that treasure really is. It's written in order to show us the riches of God's grace toward us in Christ. And Paul understands that it is only when the believer understands the riches of God's grace that is ours in Christ Jesus that our hearts can be equipped to live lives for him. The order of the division is very specific and it's very intentional. 
Paul moves first to position and then to practice. He gives us first the indicatives, then he moves to the imperatives. He first talks about doctrine before moving to duty, and he moves in that exact sequence because that is the sequence that we need as Christians. It is only as our hearts are marinated in the grace of God that is given to us in Christ Jesus that we can then ask the question, how then shall we live? To move to practice without understanding position is to shortcut the sanctification process that God has revealed in Scripture. And so this book has been written to explain to us the riches that are ours if we have believed in Christ Jesus. I believe the words of the contemporary songwriter Stephen Curtis Chapman sum up what our response ought to be in reading the book of Ephesians. After meditating on the book of Ephesians, Chapman wrote these lyrics, which has become one of my favorite songs throughout the years. He said, As mercy opens my eyes, my words are stolen away. With this breathtaking view of your grace, I'm speechless, I'm astonished and amazed. I am silenced by your wondrous grace. You have saved me. You have raised me from the grave. I am speechless in your presence now. I'm astounded as I consider how you have shown us a love that leaves us speechless. And I believe that this would be the effect of the book of Ephesians upon the soul, is to leave us speechless as we consider the grace of God, is to leave us speechless as we consider the riches that God has given to us in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, is to leave us speechless as we consider the price that God's son paid on the cross in our place for our sins that we may receive the riches of his salvation. And this is where the book of Ephesians differs from the book of Philippians. You know, the book of Philippians was intimate. It was personal. It was fatherly. Paul said to the Philippian church, I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Reading the book of Philippians was like sitting down at a family meal with a dad who loves you. And he's just giving you fatherly exhortations and he's just telling you how much he loves you and your mom makes this great meal and, and you're just sitting down and, and enjoying the fellowship. Reading the book of Ephesians is like sitting down at a royal banquet with all the trappings of royalty. This great and lavish feast that God spreads before us. It is a great feast that centers around the grace of God revealed through his son Jesus Christ and God calls every believer in Christ, every child of God who is beloved by him to come and to feast at his table. And that is the feast that we will partake of as we study the contents of this book. Paul writes this book to unfold to the believer a vast panorama of God's grace and salvation. He gives us in this book a dazzling 
perspective of the wondrous grace of God that spans the range from eternity past to eternity future and that takes us up into the heavenly places in Christ. And God calls every believer in Christ to come and to feast on the glories of God's grace. I would ask you this morning, are you dry? Are you weary? Have you been discouraged by the events of life? Is your heart weighed down with trouble and care? Have you even come to the place, dear Christian, where you feel that maybe you can't get through another day, that the Christian life is just so burdensome and so weary, and you're possibly just longing to go to heaven? Come feast your soul on the glories of God's grace. Come feast your heart on the beauties of God's salvation as revealed in the text of this letter. Come lose yourself in the magnificent vision that Paul unfolds for us of the grace of God that is given to us through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And come, dear brother and sister in Christ, come be speechless again before the grace of God. Come stand in awe and wonder at the greatness of our salvation. My prayer is as we open the the pages of this book is that the effect of this book upon our souls would be that we would find grace to be amazing once again. That we would find grace to be astounding once again. And maybe you're like me, where you can think back to when you first became a Christian, when you first had your eyes open to see the beauty of Christ, and when you understood your sin before a holy God, and you understood the condemnation and the judgment that was rightly yours because of what you have done in your sins against him. And as you placed your faith in the crucified Messiah, as you looked to Christ to save you for your salvation, your heart was amazed by grace. Your heart was amazed at the wonders of Christ's love for you, that while you were his enemy, that Christ would die for you. And maybe through the course of your Christian life, you've gotten involved in work, you've gotten involved in school, and you've taken on responsibilities, and you've taken on service, and God has taken you through trials, and you've had your heart weighed down, and you've lost the wonder of your salvation. And grace is no longer amazing to you. And your heart is no longer filled with joy. And your heart is no longer filled with praise. And brother, sister, if you've been there, I'm, I'm there with you. I'm in the trenches with you. I know how easy it is to lose sight of the wonders of God's grace toward us and salvation. I think that's why the God has given to us the book of Ephesians. It is to remind us the wonders of God's grace that we ought never to lose the sense that God's grace toward us is truly amazing. And I believe that this is Paul's purpose in writing this book, is to unfold for us how amazing God's grace really is.
You know, this last week I went to the optometrist. And when I went to the optometrist, I got my eyes checked and I received the same diagnosis that I've received since I was in third grade. And that is that, Dan, you have a severe case of nearsightedness. And when you're nearsighted, or I guess the technical word is myopic, what happens is without your glasses, you can only see what is right before you. If you hold up a finger right between my eyes, I can look at, tell you exactly what those fingers are saying, but my friends have actually made fun of me because I'm severely nearsighted, so they'll actually stand a ways back and hold up some fingers and say, Dan, how, how many am I holding up? And, and I can't tell them because I can only see what is right before me. And I believe that as Christians, you and I can develop severe cases of nearsightedness. Where we only see what is right before us in our Christian lives. That if we're raising children, then children are the only thing we see because they're right before us. Or if we're going through school, then school is the only thing that we see because it's right before us. Or if we're dealing with issues in the workplace, then that's all that we see because it's just, we, we're nearsighted. We can't see beyond what is right in front of us. And what God is giving us in the book of Ephesians is the glasses, the corrective lenses that would help us to move beyond our nearsightedness and to see the big picture of what he's doing. I believe what God is saying in the course of this book is, Christian, open your eyes. Open your eyes and see the big picture. Learn to look beyond what is immediately before you and see the eternal purpose of God in your salvation. And lose yourself in this majestic picture of the grace of God through the work of God's Son. In chapter 3, verse 16, Paul prays that the church would be strengthened with power through his Spirit. That they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Paul connects the ideas of strength and understanding God's love. Paul says that it is when we understand the love of Christ, when we lose ourselves in how high and how wide and how, how high and how long the love of Christ is toward us as believers. This is when we are strengthened with power in the inner man and we are equipped to live lives that are unto God's glory. And so my prayer is for us as a church that this would be the effect of Ephesians upon our souls. If you are weary, that this book will give you strength. If you are discouraged, that this book would encourage your heart. If you are struggling with nearsightedness, and you've lost the forest because you're so consumed with this one particular tree that God would open your eyes to see the bigger picture. And as you see the bigger picture, that your heart would be strengthened in the inner man to live a life that is glorifying to him. You know, um, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm just like you. I go through dry spells I have dry seasons. I have seasons in which 
Grace is no longer amazing. I have seasons in which my heart is not filled with praise. And so how precious is this book to our souls to taste and to see the grace of God and to be dazzled once again at what he has done for us in Christ. I share all this to say that I'm excited about this book. I'm excited to study it with you. I'm excited to dig into it with you. And I would encourage you as members of Cornerstone to read the book of Ephesians on your own. You know, we are going to be studying as together the contents of this book verse by verse, but nothing can replace your own personal interaction with the text. That as you read through the text and the Holy, you devote yourself personally to the text, the Holy Spirit would lead you and teach you through the course of this study. I would just encourage you, there's six chapters in this book. You can read one a day, Monday to Saturday, and then come on Sunday and hear the teaching from the book of Ephesians. And I would encourage you not only to read this book once, but to read it repeatedly. Because as you, more and more as you read through this book, the, con- the teaching of this book will marinate in your soul. I would encourage you as well that all of us need a better understanding of God's grace. All of us need a underst- better understanding of God's grace. None of us have graduated from the school of grace None of us have gotten to the place where we can say that there's all that, I've learned all that I need to learn about the grace of God. You know, one theologian compared the doctrine of God's grace to a vast raging ocean, and he says, every time I come to the grace of God, I feel like I'm a little schoolboy bringing my little pail to the ocean. And I'm filling it up and it's causing it to overflow, and yet, no matter how much I fill, there is so much more. And the truth is that we will never exhaust our understanding of God's grace. Even in heaven, when we are there for thousands and thousands of years, God will still be unfolding to us even greater riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 7 says that in the coming ages, God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so this subject can never be exhausted. All of us need a better understanding of the grace of God. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. We serve by grace. We stand in grace. And so grace is the theme of each of our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, it is by the grace of God I am what I am. And so may we come to this book desiring that God would teach us more of his grace. I would also encourage you in this way in saying that all of us need to understand how the imperatives of scripture, how our practice as believers are vitally and inseparably connected to God's grace that our practice as Christians can never be divorced from our position in Christ, that the imperatives and the indicatives of Scripture are inseparably connected and cannot be divided. How many times have you done this like me, where you have sought to deal with an issue of the Christian life simply by looking at the imperatives of Scripture, 
simply by addressing Christian practice or Christian exhortation or Christian instruction and just asking, tell me what to do and I'll do it. That is not Paul's approach to sanctification. Paul takes the Ephesians through the indicatives of Scripture before he addresses the imperatives of Scripture. In other words, this book is perfectly balanced. Three chapters telling us what God has done and then three chapters telling us how then we are to live, meaning that, brothers and sisters, we are going to be spending a number of weeks just looking at what God has done. And if we are faithful to the text of chapters one to three, then we will be spending a number of weeks just looking at Paul's heart here, where his heart is just to say, look, believer, just just look at what God has done. Just stand amazed at his grace. Just, Just stand in awe of the great things that God has done for us in salvation. And it is only after we spend a number of weeks looking at what God has done, we then move to the subject of how then we are to live. The imperatives of Scripture have a vital and separable union with the grace of God in our salvation. And it is only as we stand amazed at God's grace that we are empowered and equipped to live out the imperatives with joy. I want my observation from this book would be simply this, that Standing amazed at God's grace is, is not optional. Being in awe of the work of Christ is not some side issue for super spiritual Christians. You, know, you may be coming this morning and your question is, how do I be a better husband? How do I be a better wife? Or how do I be a better worker at school? I mean, a worker at school or a co-worker to my my coworkers, how, how can I get better at the Christian life? How can I get better at prayer? How can I get better at service or evangelism? Or, Dan, tell me how to get better at these things. And I would tell you that Paul does address those issues. In this book, he will address husbands, and he will address wives, and he will address workers, and he will address family relationships, and he will address practical Christian conduct, but only after, only after taking us through this vast panorama of the grace of God in our lives. It's as if Paul is saying it is only as you stand amazed at the grace of God that your heart can now be equipped to live out these things. And so let us come to this book and be amazed at what Christ has done. Doctrine first, duty second. Indicatives first, imperatives come after our position in Christ then practice after that is the sequence of Paul's explanation of the Christian life and that is the process we must move through in growing in our sanctification Isaiah 55 verse 1 says come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This book will be the rich food for our souls that God encourages us to come and eat. 
Now, so far what I've let you, told you is that this book centers around the grace of God and the salvation of Jesus Christ. This book has been given to give us uh, an understanding of the riches of Christ in our salvation. But let me add one thing to what I've just said. This book is not only a book about God's grace, but specifically, it is a book about how God's grace is revealed in the formation of the church. If I could sum up the book of Ephesians in two simple words, it would be the words grace and church. God's grace in the church. In other words, God's grace has specific and concrete expressions, and one of the expressions of God's grace is his formation of the church. That is the focal point of the book of Ephesians. As we study this passage, we are going to see that Paul is unfolding to us the riches of God's grace, and then he is showing us how that is practically fleshed out in the church of Jesus Christ. If we understand the contents of this book, we will grow in our appreciation of the grace of God, and we will grow in our love and devotion to the church. Because this is the, two twi- the twin themes of the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says, God put under the feet of Christ and gave him as head over all things to the church. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Chapter 3, verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Chapter 5, verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Chapter 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so this book isn't just about the riches of God's grace. It is a book about the riches of God's grace specifically revealed in the church. And what we're going to find in this book is an understanding of the church that is sweeping and that is theological. If you understand the teaching of this book, you will grow in your appreciation and your love for the church, and your love for the church will be grounded in the doctrine and theology of the text of Scripture. Many of us love the church for practical reasons. The church makes me feel good, or I like people in the church. Others of us love the church because of programmatic reasons. The church has these programs that meet my needs, but what this book would call us to is to love the church because of theological reasons, to ground your love and devotion to the church in the sound doctrine that is contained in the word of God. And brothers and sisters, if you love the church for any other reasons except for sound theology, your love for the church will diminish over time because programs and people will let you down. But if you love the church because of the theology of the church, that conviction will hold your heart and sustain your commitment through the decades and through the years of Christian ministry. Our love for the church must be grounded and rooted in the sound doctrine that is contained in the word of God. And what this book contains for us is not only a dazzling explanation of the grace of God, but a theological explanation of the church. This book is ecclesiology ecclesiology in, in an epistle. It is the gospel as it relates to the church. And so we find that grace is central to this book, and we find that the church is central to this book. And one of the central tenets of this book is what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 3, where he calls the church a mystery. 
This is one of the central teachings of the book of Ephesians is that the church is a mystery that is revealed in New Testament times. And by mystery, what Paul means is that the church is the truth that was unknown in Old Testament times, that was unrevealed in Old Testament times, that has now been revealed after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the Old Testament time is God's plan of redemption centered around the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel was, was contained... Uh, was uh, made up of, of ethnic Jews descended from the line of Abraham. And if you were to have told a Jew back in those days that, you know, one day all the Hittites and all the Ammonites and all the Jebusites and all the Canaanites and, and all the Gentile world are all going to come together with ethnic Jews and they're going to be joined together in one body and they're going to place their faith in a Jewish Messiah and they're going to worship him forever and ever, that Jew would have told you, you don't know what you're talking about. Haven't you read the Old Testament law? Haven't you read how the plan of God focuses on ethnic Israel? And Paul says that the church is a mystery. That post-death of Christ, post-resurrection of Christ, after Christ has come and ascended to the right hand of his Father, that God has now birthed in this world this unique organism where Jew and Gentile are melded together and which they stand on equal basis through the blood of Christ before God. And they give praise to Jesus Christ and will do so forever and ever. Paul says that the church is a mystery that is now revealed in New Testament times. And in chapter 3, verse 9, he says that what God is doing in this mystery it is he is unveiling the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What, what Paul is saying in this simple verse is that the audience of the church is the angels in heaven. That God has instituted the church to be what it is. God has put his grace on display in the church of Jesus Christ in order that he may show to the angels in heaven how great and how wise and how powerful he really is so that the angels would look at the church that is on earth and that they would give praise to God because he is so wise. Have you fallen into a nearsighted perspective of the church? Are you looking at the church and just seeing what's right in front of us? What's right before us? Put on the glasses that are found in Ephesians. There is so much more that God is doing than what is right in front of us. He has a vast eternal purpose that is being unfolded in our midst because we are the church of Jesus Christ and the angels are watching us and they are worshiping God because of what they see. So this book is a book about God's grace. This book is a book about the church. And I would add one final thought as we introduce this epistle. This book is a book about Jesus Christ. It's a book about Jesus Christ. Look at chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, you cannot even open the letter without speaking of Jesus Christ three times in the first two verses. He gives us a preview of what this letter is gonna be like. Paul is gonna speak of Jesus Christ repeatedly and often, and he's gonna relate every single subject to Jesus Christ. 
I mean, you'll go to the chap- chapter on marriage and, just, and just, just speak on on husbands and wives and just see how many times Paul is going to speak about Christ. It's all about Christ. It's as if Christ is the consuming vision of his life and every time he speaks, he speaks of Christ. 45 times it's been counted, 45 times Paul speaks of Christ in the course of the book of Ephesians. And every subject in this book is ultimately a subject about Christ. And in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says that he's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus, and he says, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. You want to note that phrase very carefully, in Christ Jesus, because it is going to be used 11 separate times in the first 14 verses. Everything that Paul is going to say is going to relate around this theme that we as believers in Christ, we are in Christ Jesus. We are in union with Christ and his death and his resurrection. And because we have been united with Christ in an amazing demonstration of the grace of God, that all of the blessings that Christ has purchased through his life, death, and resurrection belong to us as believers because we are in him and he is in us. You know, brothers and sisters, that's why marriage is such a beautiful, is such a beautiful picture of Christ in the church. When I got married, my bank account ceased to be mine alone. It wasn't my wife had a bank account and I had a bank account. Everything she had belonged to me and everything I had belonged to her. And what an incredible picture of the Christian's relationship with Christ. That we are not just with Christ or near Christ, but we are in Christ. We are in union with him. And so everything that he has earned is also ours. And we have been seated in the heavenly places in him. Three words summarize all that I have said to you this morning. Those words are, number one, grace. Number two, church. And number three, Christ. Do you love these words? Do you treasure these words? Are these the words, the longings of your heart? Do you desire to understand the grace of God, the church of Jesus Christ? Do you long to understand Christ himself more and more? And if you do, you will love the book of Ephesians because this book is about the riches of God's grace. This book is about the mystery of God's church and this book is about the glory of Christ as revealed in the salvation that he has given. And I trust that at the end of this book, as we study faithfully through the teaching of this epistle, that we will say at the end of this series, the confession of Paul in Ephesians 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's close our time together. Father, thank you for the book of Ephesians. Thank you for your kindness in giving to us this letter. And Lord, we look forward to the next number of months as we dig into the truths of this great book. Father, teach us, open our eyes, deliver us from our spiritual nearsightedness, help us to see the bigger picture of what you are doing, that we may be equipped to live lives for your glory. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen.